Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7 this evening. Luke chapter 7. In chapter 7, uh, verses 18 to 35, our passage for last week, we were asking the question with John the Baptist, who is this Messiah? If Jesus is the Messiah, then why was John still sitting in prison? And Jesus responds to John's question uh, about his identity by doing a few things. First, he heals a bunch of people to, in front of John's disciples. And then he responds to them by uh, essentially saying that I am the one whom the Spirit has anointed to do these miracles and I am doing these as a clear identifying marker that I am the promised Messiah. And further proof is seen in the rejection of John that John is expecting, well, if the Messiah is supposed to come, he should be winning, he should be ruling, should be destroying. And instead, Jesus is, as we'll see, losing and he's not destroying, and he's being rejected. Shouldn't he be accepted if he's the real Messiah? John's working through all these questions in his mind as he sits in Herod's prison. And Jesus says effectively, listen, they have to reject you, John, and they have to reject me. You were the forerunner, and there's of all the prophets that there have ever been, there's not one greater than John. And, and yet they rejected him, and... The Pharisees labeled both John and Jesus as brats, that they are social deviants. And so we are left wondering, with John, who is this Jesus? Who is this Messiah? And the answer is going to uh, uh, be developed throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke, but the question is going to continue. Who is this Jesus? And we'll see it even in this passage tonight. So let me read our passage, chapter 7, verse 36. And I'll read to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. This is the Word of God. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept weeping and kept wiping them with her hair on her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume now when the pharisee who had invited him saw this he said to himself if this man were a prophet he would know who and what sort of person this woman is and who is touching him that she is a sinner and jesus answered him simon i have something to say to you and he replied say it teacher a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, 
loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So there's the question at the end of the passage, verse 49. Who is this man? This is kind of continuing. We're trying to find out who this Jesus is. Who is this Messiah? And Luke wants us to ask that question as Jesus now does something that only a Messiah could do, that only a Savior could do, and that is to forgive sins. In this passage tonight, we'll see that genuine saving faith recognizes its sin and responds with lavish love. Genuine saving faith recognizes its sin and responds with lavish love. We'll see the first part of that, or the second part of that statement first. Genuine saving faith responds with lavish love, verses 36 through 39. We're introduced to two new characters. First, Simon, a Pharisee. Simon invites Jesus to his house to have dinner. The text doesn't tell us why. It could have been a custom for um, a Pharisee to invite a a visiting rabbi to a meal since he was teaching in the synagogue. You know, as he comes to teach in the synagogue, one of the ruling Pharisees of that synagogue says, hey, why don't you come over to my house? It could be that Simon likes to rub shoulders with the elite. You know, did you hear who I had over the other day? I had Jesus of Nazareth, the one that everybody's talking about. He was at my house. It could be that Simon wanted to trap Jesus and make him look foolish. You know, as a Pharisee, the Pharisees were very good at this, especially at the end of Jesus' life. They wanted to trap him constantly because he threatened them and their position. Or it could be that Simon just genuinely wanted to learn from him. And I think there's probably not good motives in what Simon does in inviting him over, but the, but the fact is the text doesn't tell us, and we, we all we know is that he invites him over. The second character that we're introduced to, the second new character, is the woman who is a sinner in verse 37. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And if you look in the margin of your Bible, it, it, it says an immoral woman. We don't know exactly what she's done, but the fact that people saw her as a sinner, that she was publicly known as a sinner, tells us something. It tells us that she was involved in some kind of serious public sin. And probably most likely, most scholars believe that she was a prostitute. And apparently she hears news that Jesus is in town and that Jesus is eating at the house of Simon. And so she rushes to see him. And in verses 37 and 38, she enters his house. And this is kind of peculiar for us because we would think, you know, unless you have a door on your house, you just let people walk in from the street, whoever wants to come in. Um, but apparently when dignitaries or traveling rabbis would come to visit a person's home, in the ancient Near East, the public would allow them to come in. Uh, they would just allow, uh, I'm sorry, the, the individual would allow the public to come in and watch and just kind of see what's going on and, and observe. They weren't responsible to feed all the, all the public. And so she comes. She comes to watch. Apparently, she ends up behind Jesus, just listening in on what's going on at the table, watching. And and then we find that she begins to cry. In verse 38, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Now, a lot of times when we read this passage, I think, I know I have, is kind of picture that she just rushes to him. She gets down on her knees. 
she's weeping on him purposely so that she could wet his feet. But I think probably more likely what's happening is that she's just standing there listening and, and she's reminded about what Christ has done for her and she begins to cry. And as she's standing there, the tears start to fall on his feet and she realizes what she's done. Now, we need to understand something about how they would eat a meal in those days because uh, if you came to my house and stood behind me and began crying, or if I did the same to you, you know, we wouldn't, it, it wouldn't fall on, on our feet, right? It, there, there wouldn't be tears falling on our feet because we sit at a table with our feet in front of us. But in the ancient Near East, people would dine at a table that was near the floor. Okay, and, and I'll spare you the visual illustration, but basically they would lay on their left elbow on some kind of a cushion and the table would be kind of a U-shaped table and they would be doing this and they, were, they would use their right hand to eat and their feet would extend outward. So if we looked at it, Okay, this is how the Lord's Supper was. So, so this is Jesus. His his feet are sending, extending outward like a, like a, the spokes on a wheel. Yes, and uh, this is why you know you have like John leaning back and asking Jesus a question. He leans back on his chest and says, you know, who is this one who's going to betray you? That that's the way that they would eat. And so his his feet would be extended outward like this, and so she would have been standing right about here, just standing right behind, listening to what's going on. His feet are away from the table, and she begins to cry. And she notices, uh oh, I just got his feet all wet. And she doesn't have anything to clean his feet with, and so she decides to let down her hair, and and begin to dry his feet with her hair. Now, what you need to know about her using her hair is that that was a huge social faux pas for a woman to let down her hair except for in front of her husband. In fact, uh, Jewish rabbis believed that women letting down their hair in public was on par with the most vile expressions of public nudity. And that letting uh, for a woman to let down her hair in public was actually grounds for divorce. That the man could divorce her legally and rightfully if she did so. And so for her to do this suggests something about how how little she cared about what was going on other than what was going on between her and Jesus. It's not that the woman, I think, is ignorant of all the societal expectations, but I think that she's just so captivated with who Jesus is. We'll talk about this as we go through, that she focuses only on Him. But she doesn't stop there by wetting his feet with her tears and drying his feet with her hair. As she continues to weep and wipe his feet with her hair, she leans down to kiss his feet out of love. And then she takes the vial of perfume that ladies would often carry with them around their neck and she pours it on his feet. And so Luke paints this picture for us that even as I describe it, it makes even us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Like, Jesus, are you sure you're supposed to be letting her do this? Particularly if she's a moral woman? Notice how Simon responds in verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Man, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him and that she is a sinner. I imagine that Simon's expressions 
don't, at first doesn't even notice her. And then as he notices it, she starts to cry that perhaps he's dismissive of her. And then annoyed. And then as he sees her get down there and let down her hair, he's shocked. How could she do this? And then as, he, as she kisses his feet and pours perfume on it, I imagine that he would be just sickened or disgusted by such a, uh, an unclean woman touching this man who says he's a prophet. His evaluation of the prostitute leads him to make an evaluation of Christ, doesn't it? The fact that she is touching Jesus suggests something about Jesus. If he were a prophet, then he would recognize the sinner and he would separate from sinners. And based on his evaluation, Simon, he doesn't recognize that this woman's a sinner or and or he does not separate from her. I mean, prophets don't let prostitute kiss, prostitutes kiss their feet. And so we have one viewpoint of what's going on here. We have one viewpoint of, of how we should evaluate the woman and how we should evaluate Jesus. But Jesus is going to give an alternative viewpoint, and He does so in verses 40 through 50, that not only does genuine saving faith respond with lavish love, we'll come back to that idea, but genuine saving faith, as expressed by the woman, recognizes its own sin. A person who is genuinely saved will recognize their own sin. Simon here is thinking that Jesus is not a prophet, and Jesus wants to show that he is a prophet. Notice the first way that he does that in verse 40. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And all that follows really is a response to this confusion in Simon's mind, right? Simon's thinking something. This can't be a prophet. And Jesus responds to what Simon's thinking without Simon verbalizing it. Tells us that Jesus is a prophet. In fact, He's more than a prophet. And as He often does, in order to make His point, He uses a parable in verses 41 to 43. Again, we have two characters. One with a large debt. One with a reasonably sized debt. Okay, first, The first one has a debt of, notice the end of verse 41, 500 denarii, and the other... 50 denarii. If you look at the margin of your Bible, denarii is one day's wage. And so 500 denarii would be 500 days of labor. And if you consider that they would only work probably six days a week because of the Sabbath, that that would be close to 20 months of wages. So for an average Michigan worker, that's $85,000. So one debtor owed $85,000 in debt and the other owed 50 denarii, which is 50 days of wages, about a couple months. And so what would that be? And just if we use the same averages. Instead of 85,000, 8,500, right? So you have two uh, hugely different debts. And yet, notice what happens. Verse 42, the money lender, even though they were unable to pay, the money lender graciously forgave them both. So, Jesus asks, who, who loves more? The one who is forgiven $85,000 or the one who is forgiven 8500 Both significant debts. Both we would love to be freed from. But who would love more? And the point of the story, obviously, is the one who had the larger debt forgiven. And that's uh, what, what Simon says. The one whom he forgave more. In other words, the one he, who had the larger debt. But now Jesus 
takes it a step further. Just in case Simon can't connect the dots here, Jesus is going to connect the dots for her. He, he wants to show her the application of this parable that he's using to the woman that's weeping on him and letting down her hair and, and kissing him and pouring perfume on him. And he contrasts the woman, who is a sinner, with Simon. Notice how he contrasts her. First, with the washing of feet, verse 44. Turning toward the woman. You can kind of imagine that she's in the background at this point, and now Jesus turns towards her. And he says, you see this woman? You see her right here? I entered your house, Simon, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. It would be common courtesy to have a servant wash Jesus' feet. That is, if you were the owner of the house and you had a guest come to your house, you would have a servant wash the feet of the guests. It would be similar to what you do when, when someone comes over your house in the winter. You take their coat. Common courtesy, right? And, and for Simon to do that would have just been normal. And yet, not only does she do this, um, but she goes beyond this. In fact, not only did he not do that, let me step back a little bit. Okay, instead of providing a servant to wash Jesus' feet, he doesn't even give him water. The second best thing to do for a guest of your house was to give them water. Let them wash their own feet. Okay, you got to remember that they're walking around in a dusty climate and uh, a dusty area, and their feet would have been dirty from all the, the walking. And that was just common courtesy to provide the water or to provide the servant as well. So he says, you haven't even done that, Simon. You haven't even given me the basic courtesy. And you know what she's done? She hasn't provided water for me. She hasn't you know, been the one that came down and washed my feet. She did more than that. She poured out her lavish love on me because she recognized who she was. Second contrast is regarding a greeting kiss. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, Simon, but she since the time I came, has not ceased to kiss my feet. Okay, so it was custom, maybe not for every guest, but for honored guests particularly, that you would kiss the honored guest on the cheek. Okay, uh, you remember Judas does this as a sign that he is a friend of Jesus. The one whom I kiss, that's the one. So he's saying, listen, I have a close relationship with him. Um, recognize this, and that's the one that you can go and take into custody. And he says, listen, Simon, you didn't even do that. When I came into the house, you gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no kiss. And you know what she's done? From the time that I have been here, she has not stopped kissing my feet. So it's not that she she just gave him one simple kiss that you would give to an honored guest. Instead, she hasn't stopped kissing. She's kissing my feet. She's poured out her lavish love. I don't know if you've thought about other cultures, but um, you know, having been to Uruguay, I now have. Well, what would you say to Archie Perez if he told you that you had to kiss him on the cheek when you greeted when he greeted you at the airport when you came to visit him in Uruguay? Would you be okay with that? I mean, that's not a really degrading thing. Like, oh, he thinks he's better than me. That's a cultural thing. That's what they do there. But what if Archie said, when 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 you arrive at the airport, you need to kiss my shoe? Or even worse, when, when you arrive at the airport, I'm going to take my shoe off and you need to kiss my feet. 
I mean, I can't think of too many things more degrading than kissing a person's feet. You see the contrast? Simon, you did something that deserved common courtesy, that demanded common courtesy, and here's this woman. You didn't do it. And and yet, here's this woman who shows her lavish, lavish love by doing one of the most despicable acts of service a person could possibly do. The third contrast is regarding ointment. Verse 46, You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Dinner hosts would anoint their honored guest at the table as a sign of honor. We don't think about this a whole lot. We don't really picture this. But if you consider Psalm 23, this is exactly what God promises to you as His child. Listen to this, Psalm 23:5. You prepare a table before me. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. All three of those images describe a dinner event that we're having with God. And the psalmist says, You prepare this beautiful table for me, and as I'm sitting at the table, you anoint my head with oil, and you overflow my cup. That is, just gives me abundance of good things. And the point is, is that honored guests would have their heads anointed with oil. And Jesus says, Simon, you didn't honor me. You didn't honor me. But by contrast, this woman has not stopped anointing my feet. She's kissed my feet. Now here, she is anointing my feet with perfumes, and so or with perfume. And so now, Jesus wants to kind of drive it home to Simon, who she is. That she has been someone who has been forgiven abundantly. Now there may be some questions in your mind at this point. Well, is Jesus giving her forgiveness because of her love? That she's kind of earning Jesus' forgiveness? That as she loves Jesus more, Jesus says, alright, now you're worthy of my forgiveness. And that's what happens. Notice verse 47. For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. That's not the case at all. The case is not she's loved a lot so Jesus forgave a lot. Okay, the text makes it clear that the reason that she's acting this way is why? She's been forgiven a lot. Look at verse 47 again. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. Here's what he's saying. The evidence of her forgiveness of much, the fact that she has been forgiven, is shown in the abundant amount of love that she's shown. The fact that she's showing this lavish love could not come from someone who was not forgiven much. Simon being the case in point. Okay, so we can make a couple wrong conclusions about this whole story. First, the woman, wrong conclusion number one, the woman earned Christ's forgiveness with her love. But Jesus says she has been forgiven. In other words, The fact that she showed this love, this abundant, excessive love, tells us that she already was forgiveness. You might think, well, what about verses 48 and 49? Look at those. Verse 48, Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Verse 49, Those who recline at the table, who is this that forgives sins? It sounds like Jesus is forgiving her right there. But I don't think that he's actually giving her reassurance. He's not even forgiving her sins at this point. Instead, I think he's showing the crowd, Simon and the rest of the people who are watching, 
Let me show you something. She already is forgiven. Notice verse 48 again. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. So it sounds like something's taking place here. But notice verse 49. Notice whose benefit it's for. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? Jesus is telling her that her sins are forgiven for the sake of those who watch, not for her sake. Because we've already seen her lavish love. And the fact that she has expressed abundant love shows that she has been abundantly forgiven. The second wrong conclusion that we can draw from this is that Simon didn't need a lot of forgiveness. So if we take these two people in the parable, you have the one who's been forgiven much. Who is that? That was the sinful woman, the prostitute. And you have the one who's been forgiven little. And that sounds like Simon. So maybe he just had a little, not as many sins to forgive. And so that's why he doesn't give as much love to Jesus. And that could be the case. Maybe he's just... uh, but, But I think that that would be a wrong conclusion. I think that that um, the point that Jesus is making is that no one is righteous enough to have little forgiveness. No one is righteous enough to kind of do enough work so that God will be satisfied and He just kind of has to clean up a few things. And so that's why there's not as much love. I don't think Jesus is making that point. I think the the analogy is showing that He didn't love love at all. The only thing that He did that could be interpreted as love was invite Him to His house. There was no water given to him for his feet. There was no washing of his feet. There was no kiss for him. And there was no anointing his head as an honored guest. It's not that the Pharisee was only a minor sinner and that he only needed minor forgiveness, but I think he didn't recognize the weight of his sin. He didn't recognize the weight of his sin. And the dinner guests respond in verse 49. You know, who is this? And this is the question that we should continue to ask as Luke's readers. Who is this man? It's the same question that's asked in chapter 5, verse 21. Do you remember what was going on there when they asked, who, who is this that can forgive sins? What was going on? It was the healing of the paralytics. Remember, he couldn't get in. He couldn't get in to see Jesus. Four people dropped him into the tiles. And, and Jesus says to him as he's, as he's laying there before him, your sins are forgiven. That is... Pharisees are like, what are you doing? I mean, anybody can say that. And Jesus said, because you are questioning whether I can forgive sins. And they were only doing it in their minds again. But, but Jesus answers their thoughts. I'm going to heal him. So get up and walk. Because it's actually easier for me to say your sins are forgiven because you can't see any more any physical signs of it. But let me just show you that I really am the Messiah. And so the question is asked again, who is this that forgives sins? And they would know from the Old Testament that only God forgives sins, and they would be right. But their problem was they thought that Jesus was blaspheming. And they were wrong about that because Jesus is God, and He could forgive sins. Verse 50, Jesus affirms her forgiveness again, and He said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Again, I don't think this is for her benefit. I think she was already forgiven long before she came. Maybe even, it could have been that day, but, but, it, but, but long before she came to the dinner, she was already forgiven. That's why as she considers it, standing over Jesus, she just begins to weep. She had already been forgiven. She had already recognized her sin and what Jesus had given to her. 
to the proper response by the people should have been to accept the woman as a forgiven sinner, no longer a prostitute, no longer a sinner, a public sinner. Accept her as a forgiven sinner and forget, accept Jesus as the Messiah, the one who forgives sin. The jury's still out as to whether these Pharisees would do that. Well, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we see a third point, and that is that genuine saving faith sees a need and seeks to provide. We have this record of these three women and several other, really, that support the ministry of Jesus. Verse 1, soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve disciples, that is, were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, like Mary, who was called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, and many other who are contributing to their support out of their private means. Luke records these three verses to show, I think, the widespread influence that Jesus had. It's surprisingly that, you know, if you had the power of Jesus, wouldn't you provide for yourself? You know, wouldn't you provide through miracles? Why not just, you know, make money appear? And provide all that they needed. Or like He did with the feeding of the 5,000, just make your food appear all the time. But that's not what He did. Besides a few cases like that and like the coin in the fish's mouth, the primary means of their financial support in order for them to be able to work on this full time was these three women and many other like them who saw the need and recognized His significant influence and wanted to contribute to it. And this... This list of three women spans at least two types of classes. You have one, a lower class, like Mary Magdalene, who was formerly demon-possessed. And then you have this other class of woman, Joanna, who is married to Cusa, someone who works in Herod's household. And you have both classes of society, both the respected and the degraded class of society, contributing to Jesus, showing His widespread influence. In addition to these two and um, and Susanna, there are literally many other women who support Jesus' ministry. Notice verse 3, And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, and many others. And that In the Greek, that's in the feminine. So it really is many other women were contributing to their support through their own private means. So genuine saving faith sees a need and seeks to provide So what we have here is that those who have been genuinely forgiven will recognize their own sin and respond to Jesus with lavish love. And I don't know about you, but um, I identified most with Simon in this story. Because sometimes when I think of my sin, I think, you know, I have been forgiven little. Maybe that's the reason why I don't love as much. But I just want to encourage you tonight, if you have been saved for a long time, that everyone has a great testimony. Everyone has a great testimony of salvation because everyone is a notorious sinner. There is no such thing as a bad testimony. Right? You were resurrected from the dead, spiritually. We tend to think that unless we're saved from a life that was, you know, tiptoeing on the edge of hell then we don't really have that good of a testimony. In other words, you know, if I were like the Apostle Paul, 
a murderer or like this woman here, a prostitute, and then God saves me, man, I would shout from the top of the hills, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. But, you know, I saved when I was young. God didn't really save me from much. But I would suggest to you that that type of thinking has to be seriously challenged. And the reason for that is because we tend to think, like Simon, that we were only mostly dead when God saved us. You know, it's more like a reviving. Like we had a little bit of life there and we just needed, we just need someone to kind of hit us across the face and wake us up. We think our minor sins kept us from tiptoeing on the edge of hell, but the Bible says that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, weren't we? All of us. And that our sins, no matter how seemingly minor, caused us to stand, I think, on the edge of hell where God rescued us. I don't care whether you were saved when you were 50 or when you were 25 or when you were 5. You were God's enemy. You were deserving of God's wrath. And yet God condescended to you in the person of Christ and caused His Spirit to be poured out on you so that you could be rescued from floating lifelessly in the sea of destruction. And He regenerated you, which means that He imparted life to you who once were spiritually dead. That's what He did for you. Christian, you have a great testimony of salvation. And we tend to think of the dynamic testimonies of other people and think, Man, when you look at all the things that God saved them from, imagine it like it's just a huge pile of trash. God really just had to bring in a bulldozer and get rid of all their junk. But for for those of us who are saved, maybe not out of a life of deep sin, then our trash that needs to be removed is more like a few orange peels. You know? Trash, yes. But... You know, it's kind of sweet smelling. And it's almost a pleasure to get rid of it. And it's still got some use, too. You kind of use the orange zest. Right? That's how we see ourselves, isn't it? And yet, when we recognize that Christ saved us, that we were once dead, that God raised us from the dead, we have to consider that we have a great testimony. What was harder for Christ to do? To raise you who were dead or to raise someone else over here who was really, really dead? Right? Which one is harder? What? There's no difference. And who has a better story to tell? The person with the huge pile of trash or what we consider a small pile? Which, by the way, I argue that that's not even the case. Who has a better story to tell? The widow of Nain's son? who was raised from the dead, or Lazarus? Who would have shouted from the top of the hills that he had been resurrected more? The widow of Nain's son or Lazarus? I mean, the son of the widow, you know, he wasn't dead for four days. He probably died earlier that morning. They were having the funeral that day. He wasn't well known like Lazarus. He wasn't a great friend of Jesus. But, you know, what about Lazarus' story of resurrection? Now that would be the kind of resurrection story I'd want to have. I mean, if I wanted to start a motivational speaking 
tour. That's the kind of resurrection story I want. I mean, his body was already decomposing. He was well known by Jesus before that. And, and, and people were after him even after that, wanting to kill him. The grief had been going on for four days. I mean, friends, that is how ridiculous it is for us to compare our testimonies to someone else and think, my story of being raised from the dead is not as good as your story. The point of this passage is that we all have been forgiven much when we recognize the weight of our sin. Your sin, all by itself, was enough to put Jesus on the cross. Do you understand that? That your sin on its own. It wasn't that, oh, Jesus died for all people and mostly for all people because I barely contributed to it. But do you realize if you were the only person in the world that your sin would be enough to crucify our Savior? And by the way, He would have done it for you. That's how much He loves you. Your sin was enough to leave you spiritually lifeless. Your sin was enough to have you standing on the edge of hell. Your sin required the ultimate sacrifice. And so, friends, you have been forgiven much. You are the woman who is a sinner. That's you. And that's me. So let me ask you, do you love Jesus much? The proof of your forgiveness is the same proof that she showed. It was that she loved much. Do you express love to Jesus through not just the the minimum, the bare minimum acts of service, but what did she do? She went over the top, right? He didn't even give her the basics that Jesus should have gotten as a guest in His house. But she went over the top. She's weeping on Him, wiping His head with her, or wiping His feet with her hair, kissing Him. Are we willing to show lavish love to Jesus or are we too concerned about what other people will think about us? What's wrong with that person? What is it that you do love about Jesus? Suppose you get home tonight and your neighbor asks you, you know, why, why do you make such a big deal about Jesus? What is it about you and Jesus? Would you be able to tell them? Would you be able to give them an answer? How long would you be able to talk about Jesus? How long would you be able to express what you do love about Jesus? Well, our hymn book is full of songs. People whose hearts overflow because of their love for Jesus. I think this woman could have talked for hours about what Jesus did for her because she recognized the weight of her sin and she was not concerned about what other people thought about her. She was concerned about Jesus and her relationship with Him. She recognized the enormity of her sin and what He had forgiven her of. And as a result, she poured out what looked like to be excessive love. But really, for the King, it's not excessive at all, is it? It's the very least that we can do with ourselves. Those who have been forgiven much, I would say it this way, those who recognize their sin, that they have been forgiven much, every single one of us, will love much. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for how Your Word speaks directly to where we are. Lord, we have some people in here with some 
some spectacular testimonies of how you have saved them. Praise, we praise you for that. But Lord, every single one of us, myself included, saved at a young age, has a spectacular testimony because we were raised from the dead. We were your enemies and you saved us from living a life. We could have spent 20, 30, 40 years in opposition to you, but you saved us from all that. You you, you, uh, reconciled us to yourself through the death of Jesus, through the payment of Jesus. Sometimes we think of ourselves as kind of floating out in the water and just needing a rope for someone to throw to us, but really the better uh, analogy would be for us to just be floating out there lifelessly. We can't grab the rope. We need you to pull us into the boat and breathe in life to us. And that's exactly what you did when you brought us to Christ. And I praise you for each person here who has been forgiven much. And I pray that the response by us would be to love much. Lord, give us specific ways that we can love much today and this week. I pray that you would constantly remind us of our need for you. In Jesus' name, amen.